Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. Sheila Lord is the founder and director of BMR Health and Wellbeing, with over 30 years of experience working in supply chain, quality management and operations. Sheila works with business leaders to develop preventative mental health programs to create better, happier workplaces. Well, morning, Sheila. It's certainly uh, hot as we're re- recording this. How are you? Um, how are you keeping? Uh, really, really well. It's my kind of ideal, perfect weather. Actually, I absolutely love it. Oh, and I, I also love fielding the classic questions at this time of year. So, is it um, what's the maximum temperature that we can have in the workplace before we can all go home? Ever, ever had to deal with that one before? I, I have, and I still don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and um, and the problem with us being people is that we're all different as well. So despite how hot it might be, there's always someone who's cold. Absolutely. When you look at it, how hot does it have to be before you have to go home? How does that apply when you're actually working in a kitchen? So it's always hot in the yeah. kitchen, isn't it? So I don't know. Oh, good point. Good yeah. point. I mean, maybe maybe that might come down to this thing, risk assessment. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, I'm not sure that I have, have I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe it does come down to that. Who knows? <laughs> well, do you know what? That's not a bad, I don't think that's actually a bad starting point, you know, talking about people and the differences in people, because like, like anything that we try and implement, you know, you try and capture as many people's views and, and opinions, of, but ultimately you're never going to get it right for everybody. So when we're thinking about yeah, well-being or whatever or whatever we're looking at. How do we deal with the outliers? Yeah, I just think that when it comes to stuff like this, you know, you mentioned their risk assessment and having this risk-based approach. And I think a lot of organisations, when it comes to trying to assess risk in well-being, they completely miss the mark. Um, they'll either approach it through well-being surveys, pulse surveys, that type of thing. And we're not actually assessing the risk of people and we're not collecting data in a way that is truly usable that gives us real meaning um so for example i don't know just like you say one thing you know temperature for example somebody will be more resistant to hot weather than um another and if you look at well-being you know one of the things that often gets asked in something like an engagement survey is a statement question of, of something like i am often pressured to work to tight deadlines or uh, i have a heavy workload now you can answer that question, but that tells you nothing about well-being impact. All that tells you is about how work is. So you having a high workload and you having been pressured to work to tight deadlines, that could be a real motivator for you. That could get you with a spring in your step thinking, yes, on it, got to get this deadline done, got all this pressure on, I love it, really motivates me. Whereas for me, for example, that might have the complete opposite effect and really, really stress me out. So we need to change the way or look at well-being and how we're trying to assess this in a different way. And what we need to be asking people is when workload becomes too great for you to manage, either emotionally, physically, mentally or any combination of, does that impact your well-being? And if the answer is yes, 
how much does that impact you? Is it a severe impact? Is it a minor impact? Is it an every now and then impact? How often does it happen? And when it happens, how long does that last for? So then as we're able to collect all of that data, yes, there'll be outliers in there, but what we'll be able to see is that actually a large percentage based on severity, risk and duration, we get this overall risk factor. So we're able to really hone in on those areas that people are being impacted by. And that's a really interesting point because you think, you know, sending out things like a survey, there's only so many of those you can do to keep people interested and, and you know, to make them want to respond to it. So it's really important that you ask, you know, ask the right questions. And sometimes, like you just said there, just ask the question in the wrong way. You don't actually get meaningful information back. Um, and if you're pigeonholing, kind of pigeonholing people into a, well, a very black and white, it's a yes or a no. So well, what, what am I actually going to do with that then? If I say to people, are you stressed? It's like, well, yes, I am stressed. Okay, great, thanks. But, but to your point, if you actually understand what that looks like and how you know how frequent it is, how it manifests, and then I suppose what you know, if you're in that situation, what support have you got? You can then you know really understand what that actually looks like in the organisation. Absolutely, and I think you know with, when we talk about surveys, surveys have been done to death, yeah. And and the problem I find with surveys is is survey fatigue. Basically, people are sick of filling them in. And the, the reason people get sick of filling them in, because there's no what's in it for me. There is no what's in it for me in so much as a lot of organisations approach gathering these surveys and then they almost keep the results as top secret. It's between management, it's between uh, maybe the HR team or the senior leadership team. And when the survey results are gathered, there's no consultation piece. There's no feedback piece to employees in a timely manner. And then there is no, and this isn't, you know, I'm saying no, there are organisations that will do it well. But, in a, you know, a large part of what I hear is that, well, we fill these surveys in and we get nothing back. And, you know, our approach in, in terms of the way we um, work with employers and employees is if you're not going to do the feedback and you're not going to do the workshop to put the survey results into context by talking to the people that gave you the information, don't bother with the survey. It's meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. And, and you've got to show to employees that if you're doing these surveys, if you're doing these risk assessments in the right way, that you're actually going to take action to resolve some of the issues. You wouldn't do a physical risk assessment, identify um, a high risk factor like a guarded missing off a machine and then walk away and do nothing about it. You know you have a duty of care to sort that out because sooner or later that's going to cause a physical injury. And it's the same with well-being and psychological health. If we identify that excessive workloads are causing an issue and we fail to do anything about it, then we're just leaving an employee exposed to potential injury and we are not, uh, you know, we have the same duty of care for psychological injury as we do for physical injury. It's covered by the same legislation. So why do we feel that we can treat it differently and not give it that same because level? Because it's easier. It's easier absolutely. to deal with the physical stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The guard is missing. You can very much see it and you can very much resolve it. But you want to understand about how people are and their well-being, you've got to put more effort into it. The thing is, as well, I think what, what with it, when it comes to well-being and the approach is there, you know, we'll look at well-being and we think, oh, I'll just buy this or I'll just do that and then it's done. It's not. It has to be 
part of everyday operations. We need to be asking the questions, evaluating and improving the working conditions on an ongoing basis. We don't just do one physical risk assessment and go, job's done, we did that, we got the guard in, because, you know, two months later, the guarding might fall off or there'll be another, you know, a handle on a, a you know, a guardrail on a, on a banister, a stair banister might come off. Equipment might be faulty that's used at working at heights. It could be anything. The thing is, the working environment, physically and psychologically, is a constant moving beast. So our approach has to be constant and moving. And if we're not constantly evaluating the work environment for the psychological factors we're failing in our duty of care really. I often hear and often talk to organisations where they, they start to tackle wellbeing by putting some actions into place first. You know we've all we all joked about the you know the weekly fruit basket as a you know that'll fix all, all well-being problems. But let's imagine then you're working in a fairly small organisation. Perhaps you're you know you're the only health and safety person in there, and you know well you really want to start pushing the well-being agenda. But rather than just trying to champion a few changes in, how would you practically go around first of all trying to get it on the senior team's agenda, and then how would you advise that they actually start? start the process off you know it's recognizing that this is going to be a process that may take you know a number of years and you're not going to be able to fix it overnight but but what are some practical ways to start uh, start those conversations off well i think one of the first things we need to do is to have a look at the actual business case and to get the attention of senior leaders because if we've not got senior leadership brought in it's like trying to push water up a hill without a container yeah <laughs> it, it is pretty much nigh on impossible to get it done without sponsorship um, from somebody in the senior exec position so I think that's one of the things and there's a number of statistics out there that we can use to actually work this out you know if you take some of the the, the most common ones and the, the thing is you can really tie yourself up in knots with all the data and all the stats that are out there okay uh, I stick to kind of two lots of statistics which is the Deloitte report on the cost or per employee of sickness, absenteeism, presenteeism and, and staff turnover, which is estimated to be £1,700 per employee in your organisation. So that's a really simple way of calculating it. £1,700 times the number of employees in your business, that's approximately what it's costing you. Okay, so let's have a look at what the cost is. Let's have a look at our absence rates, have a look at our sickness days and let's have a look at what that's costing us today. And let's have a look at then, you know, once you start to see those numbers, those numbers become quite big. And then we've got to get the, the understanding at senior leadership level that well-being and productivity and outputs will correlate. If everybody's happy and engaged in your workforce, and I don't mean the fluffy stuff, but I come to work, I feel like I've, I've, I'm valued, I have a sense of meaningfulness about my job, and I want to do a good job. My work levels are going to be up here. I'm going to be productive, I've got attention to detail, I'm going to want to do the right job and get the best results for myself and for the organisation. If I'm disengaged, if I've got a horrible boss, if I've got a crap work environment, if I've got really crap pay, I'm going to come in and I'm like, I can't be asked. They can't be asked about me, I can't be asked about them. And the attitudes are very, very different. So you might have 
sloppy workmanship going out to clients or poor service or somebody that just loses their rag in a customer service environment with <laughs> a really important client. These things happen. Yeah, and we know it takes seconds to trash a really good relationship. Absolutely. And and we're just not joining the dots up here. And, you know, once we can kind of get senior leadership to understand that these things, once we start to measure them and we can see them, really add value to the business and I liken it back to when I worked in so my my previous career before I got involved in workplace well-being was in supply chain and I worked in procurement for gosh 25 years showing me age now but I worked in procurement for many many years and I started in procurement in the late 80s early 90s and at that time procurement was seen very much as an administrative function okay and, and it was seen that, oh, they're just the um, order places that fill out the purchase requisitions, send them off to a supplier and get some stuff delivered. And then eventually at strategic levels, you know, after people, procurement professionals were pushing on this door saying, hang on a minute, we can deliver real value to your business. We can deliver real bottom line. And then the accountants, the penny dropped. Yeah. And it was like, hang on a minute. Every pound that that person in that procurement department saves on materials or services goes straight to our bottom line. Yep. Do not pass, you know, don't, you know, collect your 200 pounds and ding, ding, ding. Exactly. The ding, ding, ding went off. And you look at how strategic procurement is now in the corporate world, in, in, you know, in the world of, of, of business. Procurement is one of the most focused strategic areas of the business because for every penny saved is a penny on the bottom line so I, I feel like I might be able to guess where this is going Sheila you're not about to tell me that investing in well-being can can save on the bottom line as well are you yes I might be going down that route oh there Adam <laughs> but it is true you know once we start to understand it and, and I used to say to my boss years ago look we're saving all this money why do they not just change it in the accounts why don't we report you know we can report um, material price variance and the variances that we've saved and then once we start to see it in the accounts once it starts to be visible in the numbers then it's got more attention. And I say the same about well-being. If we look at um, staff costs, for example, in a lot of businesses, staff costs could be as high as 70% of the total kind of expenditures. So, But then we see this lumped together with staff costs. Do we see that broken down as staff costs, absence, attrition, recruitment, training, and then actually being able to measure, if we reduce those items year on year, and look at the variance between year on year and correlate them to any well-being programs that we're running, can we see a correlation that those costs are coming down and that our well-being investment is actually delivering a return on, on investment? Now, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. But my question to that is then, how does the average you know practitioner, whether it be in health, safety, well-being, etc., how do they add on that that part, that being able to understand how that impacts on the business and being able to kind of drive that forward? Because I, I totally under, un, understand where you're coming from. If you're if you're an executive and you can see on the numbers how that works, absolutely you're going to buy into it. But on the flip side of that, if someone's just explaining to you how it will work and, and aren't actually backing it up with numbers, you might not be selling it. You might not get it through. So how do we how do we help people to build those? build those skills to be able to you know make that argument and then you know push push the agenda forward 
think it's through education, a lot of it, Adam, because people don't know what they don't know. And there has been for many, many years that this there's just been this lack of knowledge and this lack of understanding. And I say that, but then actually I could argue that the flip side as well. So, so for example, we talk about well-being in the context that we do today and it's all about people and it's all about fluffy and it's let's give somebody a hug, let's have a look inside somebody's head and see what's going on in their head and their hearts. And, and actually a lot of the time that's not the case. And I think there's been a lot of good done over the last kind of eight to ten years of, of, of breaking down stigma of, of workplace mental health. But I also think there's been a lot of rebranding and stigmatising of it at a board level as well. Because if I look back at an example, when I worked in um, my old career, we had a warehouse department, right, that was um, stressed to the max. They were working loads of overtime. We were having loads of temps in. Um, it was in disarray. They were backlogged. It was a bit of a disaster, Okay. And I was tasked with it to sort it out. Now, in today's culture, to today's environment, today's approach, that would be a well-being issue and a stress issue. Yeah, it wasn't any of those things, really. Those were the symptoms of what was going on. What the problem was, what the root cause of that was, was poor work design, poor uh, workflow um lack of resources, lack of materials, you know, everybody was like sharing one printer, there were 16 people waiting for dispatch notes to come off. So when we looked at work design and work organisation and we reorganised that, all of a sudden we had an effective, and I wouldn't say all of a sudden, it took a bit of, it took a bit of time, you know, a good 18 months, two years eventually to sort it all out. But what happened was, you know, in today's approach, we'd have sent everybody on a mental health first aid course, we'd have got some EAP counsellors in, we'd have taken them out of work for a couple of hours to go and sit down and do a bit of meditation and teach them how to like switch off, when actually what we needed to do was them to sw- teach them to switch on and to switch on well and, and have control over their job and give them the tools and the resources to be able to do that. Um, so I think, and I know I'm going about the long way about answering your question, but I think that the, some of the narrative has changed and we've taken some of our, what we would normally do as a common sense type approach to problems and we fluffied them up. And I think, so what we need to do is to, with some of this is kind of go back to basics. And actually, it's about creating good work. And there have been, you know, work done by the HSE. They've developed the 2000, uh, the stress management um, standards. And then more recently, uh, we've had the ISO frameworks developed. Now, I love the fact that an ISO framework has been developed for managing workplace mental health, taking a risk-based approach. So looking at... What are the things that can go wrong in the in the way of work that can cause people to be stressed? And I think now having these frameworks in place, businesses, boardrooms, they understand frameworks. They understand KPIs. Now, don't get me wrong, there are ways to implement frameworks well and there are ways to implement frameworks <laughs> not very well, okay? So the clipboard, non-conformance seeker, uh, approach isn't really the re- the best way forward and you know the 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 overly bureaucratic approach but used in the spirit into which these are intended these are fantastic tools for making for for, for basically operationalizing well-being and making sure that we're looking at our work environment we put um, process and controls and measures in place and again not regimented not rigid but I was liking it to a school fence, a fence around a school playground. It's there to keep us safe, 
yeah but if, if it needs moving if the boundaries need moving we change it we flex it and being able to constantly evaluate through having structured process collaboratively across the whole organization we're able to do that now so if you look back at things like quality yeah quality of products and services and our how our business is structured you've got ISO 9001 I remember it back in the days when it was BS 5750 but years ago businesses didn't have that you know early 90s that again started to kind of come into effect and and that became a de facto standard when I worked in procurement if a supplier didn't demonstrate that they'd ISO 9001 they didn't get past a desktop audit isn't that what we want you know the, the... And jumping forward with um, with forty five thousand and three, that it's, it's the same thing. You want it to become the normalised standard, and you know not only is it a great you know marketing tool for your your organisation, but how great would it be if if employers are looking for jobs and be like, I'm only going to pick companies who've got forty five thousand and three because you know they then can demonstrate that they've got you know they've got the standards in place that means that they're they're going to care for me. You're absolutely right. Now, obviously, it's going to take some some time for that to that to roll out. As always, it's the large organisations that jump on it jump on it first most likely because they've got the resources to to get it up and up and running um and you know what's normally good is the smaller organizations then get to take the learning away from the larger organizations and then you know work out how how they can implement it but no absolutely see that's 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 where we need to need to be you know it's i still find it amazing where we are at the moment when we're speaking to recruiters where you know candidates first question isn't isn't about money it's about tell us about the agile agile working approach and you know for those employers who are still going now actually we we're in the office five days a five days a week. <laughs> and be like, right, well, I'm not. I'm not even going to um, put myself forward for uh, yeah for an interview. It's it's so it's gonna it's gonna be the same the same thing. And it's it's amazing to me that it's being it's employee led. People are like actually, you know, we want to be cared for. This is flipping the other way around. Where now life needs to fit into work. You know, not not work into life. Yeah, definitely. I think the the, the pandemic's really changed the way us as as individuals and as employees want to live life it's even done it for a lot of, of a lot of employers you know um but for employees yeah we've definitely changed our perspective and we've definitely i think reevaluated what's important to us and there's you know there's a massive shift change what's what's quite sad to see is that a lot of employers are reverting back to type and this kind of power control thing of of, of i want you in the office because i pay you therefore i i kind of almost own you and I want you where I can see you because I don't trust you. I don't trust you to work independently. Um, and there may be some organisations where being in the office five days a week is required. You know, what the thing with this is, is always why. Why do you want people in the office five days a week? Why can somebody not work from home? What is the why there? You know, does it work well? Is it because you don't trust them? Because they're a, a poor employee that, you know, they're always kind of, swinging the lead and skiving off and that's why you don't want that person then penalizing everybody else by saying no actually that's not the issue that nobody can work from home because actually we don't have the confidence or the guts or the whatever to to deal with this one individual specifically there's no two things that are ever the same no two organizations are ever the same i find the people who are uncomfortable with having difficult conversations and let's be honest a lot of people are difficult with having uncomfortable conversations, but the amount of things that blanket things happen because of possibly one person's inability to have a uncomfortable conversation with somebody else is amazing, you know. And 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 I think sometimes it's like you kind of have to focus yourself because you know as we're all individuals and 
if we were out of, outside of work, it might be that we avoid conflict, you know, as po- as much as possible. But when you're in that, you know, I'm in that role, and actually my role requires me to have that uncomfortable conversation. It's it's kind of focusing on well, actually, this is what the business needs me to do. It's not what it may not be what I wanted to do personally, but the business needs me to have that uncomfortable conversation to move something forward. Because I totally agree with you. The amount of times that you see people implement a company wide policy because they just can't deal with one individual case of of, of, of something and perhaps some of the times that's down to managers not actually getting uh, you know training or, or, or support into how you can have that kind of a conversation that's a really important point Adam is that you know managers are made into managers because they're generally good at a job that they have a skill or a technical ability for so you do well in that skill and that technical ability and somebody goes here you are you are now a manager but what is a manager what are they there to do what is now your job as a manager? And they're generally given a manager's role, but where's that management development? Where's that manager training? You know, when I went from, you know, a buyer to a senior buyer to getting some staff and then being a purchasing manager, God, I got it so badly wrong. I was a terrible manager. I was terrible. I was awful. <laughs> you know, and I'd have one of my, the ladies that worked for me, she'd be like, oh, I need to, uh, oh, the kids are poorly. I need to kind of be at home or I need to leave work early. And I'd be doing the, not so anyone could see me, but in, psychologically, I'd be rolling my eyes and thinking, bloody hell, people with kids and work, and this is a real pain in the backside. So, you know, how do we know, how, how do we know what our role, our role is as managers if we're not told? Uh, I, when I was working in procurement, I had a fantastic um, lady that worked for me. She was a senior buyer and she was brilliant. Everyone would go to her. She had this natural kind of ability where people came to her. She gave advice. She could have difficult conversations. She was fantastic. But she was where she wanted to be. She was a senior buyer. She didn't want to progress any further up the ladder. And I was like, no, come on. Come on, you can do this. You can do this. Let I want to make you purchasing manager. I want to give you a pay rise. I want this. I want to recognise you for all the work you're doing. She's like, I'm not really comfortable with that. And I didn't listen to her. Okay. And I gave her the purchasing manager role. She took it reluctantly. I gave her the salary. She took it reluctantly. And she just disintegrated. She hated it. She hated it. Went from loving her job. Immediately, I changed the job title. I gave her a salary increase for do, to, to continue to do what she was doing. And she went to pieces. And, and three months later, she gave me the job back and insisted on giving me the salary back, which I didn't want to take. I went back to life and carried on happy as Larry. So it's really important, I think, the lesson I learned from that is to listen and understand what it is that your staff want. I think listening is really, really a skill that people don't necessarily always understand. And it's that, you know, you're listening to understand, you're not listening to wait for your turn to respond. And at the heart of that has to be that, you know, it's got to be care. You know, I, 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 as a manager, I care about you. So I'm really going to, you know, I'm going to listen to you because I want to understand, not I'm listening to you because... I think I have to. And I guess that's a really, really good point. And, you know, if we were you know, doing a, a poll on new managers and how much support did they get either in before they agreed to be a manager, did, did they really get an outline of what it's going to look like? And then equally, once they took it up, you know, how much support did they get in the initial in the initial stages of it? Because sometimes I kind of think, well, you know, when you're a new manager, it's the first time that you've been a manager and then you're taking over a team. Sometimes the easiest approach is just to call it out there, you know, without the team. It's like, look, guys, yeah, I've I've taken on this responsibility, but 
I've never done this before, so you know, don't think that I don't that I know what I'm doing. I'm definitely going to make some mistakes here, but work with me, work with me on it, rather than you know, you you can see you take on that manager and suddenly you think right now I've got the title immediately a, fli- a switch is going to flick and suddenly I know how to be a manager when when you you know you don't. But a lot of people then think that is the expectation on them, so they pretend they know how to be a manager and get it horribly wrong. That's what I used to do. I know I've been there. I've been there as well. I can remember when I when I was a, a first a manager in my um uh, in my in my early twenties when I was re- really got a, a manager role and I you know I was managing I was managing some people who were you know some significant age gaps there and I I was quite intimidated by that. I'm like you know how do I how do I deal with somebody who's you know that that far distance and it was that well I I'll, I'll just work it out and. I've spent a lot, done a lot of things where I've just worked it out, but I'd rather have had someone to, you know, give me that coaching or that support to be like, here are the things that, based on your circumstances, that are gonna that are gonna come up. This is how you might start going about it. But come and have some conversations with me before you go and open your mouth and say something <laughs> that you can't retract later yeah, on. You're just making me think. <laughs> I could just thinking of like lots of different scenarios and things that have happened. I had somebody kick it, an older champ that used to work for me and we just got into a disagreement over something and I can't even remember what it was now. It was something and nothing. But it escalated and blew all out of proportion. He kicked a chair across the office at me. It was just this big, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I'm not really good at this manager malarkey. I don't like it. <laughs> Well, because as we well know, managers are one of the greatest causes of stress. Absolutely. You know, going back to going back to the problem, it's like, well, actually, if we get the manager bit right, we're probably less likely to have stress from from the individual teams. Yeah. Because if the if the manager cares about the teams, actively listen to them, we all know that the teams generally know what the what the problems are. So if there are issues around, like you you referenced earlier, work design or um you know there are problems where we haven't got quite got the right resources or or the right tools the teams are going to know that so if the manager's really going to be in tune with them listen to them and feed that back in proactively we can actually stop some of these things happening and it's the other obviously difficult bit with with managers are is that as an organization you might have your culture and how you deal with things but you know one team with one manager one team with another manager you can have completely different styles and you suddenly then get manager envy yeah we've got this plonker and that that person over there is really good but you know and and that's a really really good point and that's the approach that we take adam when we're working with organizations you know when we're collecting information and the tools that we use to collect the data is that you know what happens with well-being approaches is that they're very generic so it will be oh we'll have a we'll train one in five or one in six or one in ten to be mental health first aiders we'll put an employee assistance program in we'll do you know wellness wednesdays and 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 uh, pizza fridays or whatever that might be but none of that's addressing anything yeah these are all nice the 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 nice uh, kind of benefity type things that you put on not necessarily the mhfas but but what we're not doing is saying across the organization look let's understand as a baseline where we're at okay in terms of general mood of the organization how people rate the organization in terms of psychological safety what they think about workload all of these different things and then having the ability to filter that down into different departments so from an overarching perspective we can see what the, what the picture looks like overall for the whole organization but then what we want to be able to do is look at different demographics within the organization so look at different teams look at different locations and look at kind of the hot spots of positive activity 
and the hotspots of negative activity. And if we're able to identify that, one that we've got, you know, as you said before, we talked, if we're gathering this information and we're giving managers the tools to be able to do this, they can gather the information, they can consult with their staff, they can make some immediate changes, that then we get the buy-in from the staff because the what's in it for me is change, being listened to, being heard. And, get it. and if I speak up, things will get done. If I speak up, I won't get shut down. So at a local level, this can be coming on. And that manages then building trust and uh, mutual respect with his team. And then at a higher level, there might be some stuff that's above their pay grade. That goes further up. That goes onto the organisation's risk register. Coming in from different sources, they might all be reporting the same thing. It might just be that locally here, you know, Okay, we've identified workload as an issue, but when we got under the bones of that, it wasn't workload that was an issue. It's the fact that we've all got crap laptops that spend ten <laughs> minutes doing the wheel of the blue wheel of um, of death. So if we change our laptop policy and we can do that, and we get you all new laptops and we upgrade the spec, that problem's gone away. Everyone's like brilliant, happy, I can get on with the work. Yeah, but then it might be that the actual overarching IT system that costs millions of pounds or hundreds of thousands of pounds. Is substandard and doesn't isn't sufficient to, to support the organisation. That would move further up. Then we get that on the risk register, and if that's coming up, if that same thing is coming up across the whole business, say if you're a multinational or whatever, if that same response is coming up those levels, then we can see that how high that risk is becoming, and that moves it further up that strategic chain. So something's getting done about it. It's on a risk register. It's getting put in front of the right people. If the right people are the right decision makers, it goes further up the tree. So eventually, all of this gets looked at. And just by the nature of what I'm saying, you can then start to see how this is not a dip in, dip out activity. This is an ongoing operational process. We're just putting some other stuff in to capture the stuff that sits under the carpet and bring it to the surface so that we can talk about it and work through these things. And I actually think that it all kind of a lot of that links actually back to quality that we were talking about earlier. A lot of these you know items that we can potentially identify come come through you know evaluating the systems and the processes that we that we're currently using and just asking the question: Is this still fit for purpose? Because like I say, is that classic IT thing? Everybody knows, and we say, oh god, that IT system's terrible. We think, well. We're all saying that, but do, do the people who actually have influence over that actually understand it? And and also to your point, you know, when you've if you have managed to raise that up the agenda of okay, we need to we need to overhaul this sooner. It's like well, then call it out. You know, people are actually far more tolerant if you're like, look, we recognise this system isn't you know isn't isn't doing what it needs to. We can't fix it right now, but we've now got a plan in place for for doing it. And you think okay, that's fine. My expectations are being managed, and you know. As we said right at the beginning of the of the conversation, when you're doing these these surveys and then you're you're kind of hoarding the information, um, it it doesn't help people because they they just think that they're not being listened to and nothing's happening. When it's it's even worse if you're actually doing something but you're not telling people about it. And I remember when I used to do construction uh, based safety, and I love the concept of the uh, "you said we did" kind of a, of approach. You know, little little board on the on the um, uh, on the tea hut and you just put on here's, here's my idea and even if the idea was you know we're not going to do that for these reasons there was a there was some, a feedback loop it just goes you know good communication goes so far i think that you've hit the nail on the head there it's communication communication is absolutely key with this um because if we talk and we're ignored we eventually stop talking and then what's what's the point in that so it's, it's vitally important that we do this and, and do you know what 
Why do organisations not do this? Because it's perceived to be hard. And anything worth doing, anything that requires this level of commitment, it might be hard in the beginning, but my God, it's so worth it in the end. You know, and, and change takes time. Yeah, absolutely does. And, I, and I, I've loved hearing recently the term activation energy. You need a level of activation energy to get something up and running. And once you've got enough of that to, to, for it to be sustained, then you know, you've, you've created something. But it needs somebody to, to champion that in the beginning to get it going. So it, you know, things don't just happen. You know, oh, let's, let's do that. It doesn't just happen. You need someone to be driving that, driving that forward. And like you say, if, it's a, if we're going to get together a forum of uh, you know, a representative from various different teams of the, what are the things that don't work for you, someone's got to champion that bef- until it becomes the, the norm. And yeah, then it's got to be you know you then got to be fed back um, from the, from the top you know uh, all the way back down. And I think this is where and I use this phrase a lot is is operationalizing well being. At the minute, well being in in many organisations is a volunteer role. It's a volunteer role in addition to the day job. That tells me that nobody in you know if you've got that volunteering role, it's not being taken seriously. It's not being taken seriously. You know, we look at something like ISO 45003, yeah? One of the things in there, one of the key clauses in there is organisational roles and responsibilities. We need to get this as part of our job roles, yeah? It needs to have organisational responsibility. And having well-being as a volunteer role, I don't believe is is, is, is no longer acceptable. It needs to be, and, and, and it needs to be cross-functional responsibility for this. So there is HR responsibility, there's health and safety responsibility, there's management responsibility, there's employee responsibility. It's a whole organisation shared responsibility for making sure that the environment that we work in is safe. You know, and we need to get this so it's got that parity of esteem that physical safety does. You know, we're walking through a corridor or through a warehouse and we see a hazard blocking a trip hazard. You wouldn't go, "Mm, I'm not going to pick that up. It's not my job. Um, You would just pick it up. The the natural response would be, we'll move that. It's a hazard. We're going to keep people safe. We don't do that with psychological health. We might see bullying going on. We might witness something. But would we necessarily bring it up and make sure that something is done to resolve that? whilst a lot of this change takes takes time there's so many common themes that run throughout uh, when you look at the really good really good productive teams you know starting off with things like just having a clear clear vision or clear purpose I mean you, you mentioned the why earlier I often find when I go back to people when they're doing things I'll just ask them well can you explain to me why you're doing this and that often really stumps people and they're like well we're doing it because we do it I'm like okay but but why you know it's it, we have this meeting once a week okay well what's the purpose of it well, we have this meeting once a week. Okay, do you need to have this meeting once a week? Well, oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so it's always, you always challenge, challenge the why. The why changes over, and it changes over time as well. It's what are you trying to achieve here? You know, if you want people to focus on something, it's, it's give them a goal that they're really interested in, in doing, not just things like, hey, let's maximise shareholder profitability. I mean, who, who can't rally for that kind of uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> kind of you know, and, and and the why is is a technique. You know, there's the five the five whys technique. Ask why five times. Get to the root cause of why. And if you can't get to, if it has no benefit, don't do it. And 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 we just get so entrenched, I think, in 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 repetitive behaviours. That's what our brain does. It repeats behaviours, doesn't it, to to kind of shortcut us in in life. And I think sometimes we just get pigeonholed into doing the same thing just because we've always done it that way. I know. And so how do we get ourselves into a position where we're... Because challenging the why and challenging the status quo is often pushing ourselves out of our out of our comfort zone and getting us from a operational thinking to perhaps a bit more strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people are... A lot of incredible people are held back because they're fearful of, of moving outside of their comfort zone. So how's your experience been in you know, at times pushing yourself really outside of your comfort zone, I suppose, really getting into that growth mindset. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because that's what that's how I ended up doing what I was doing. So I had started my career. So my my career started on a fruit and veg stall on um, Oldham Market many years ago, then went on to kind of a YTS scheme. Anyway, long story short, I'd started like, as I say, on a fruit and veg store with no expectations of ever working in an office or anything like that. Anyway, long story short, I ended up on a YTS scheme, worked my way up from the bottom and, and got to a, a moderate level of success as an ops director, good salary, nice car, company credit card, all the rest of it. And I was hating what I was doing. And I have my best friend and now business partner who, who moved in, she lived next door to me. And we used to go out jogging and we'd be jogging around the lake um, she taught um, in schools and she taught kids about the work of uh, Dr. Carol Dweck, an American lady, I think. Um, and Carol Dweck has done a lot of work around fixed mindset and growth mindset. And I'd never heard this concept before. And she, was, she used to tell me about what she's telling these kids, these teenagers. And she's like, you know, you have a people with a fixed mindset, have a, you know, a moderate level of success, but we stay in this box, we stay in our comfort zone box, we don't step outside it. Whereas people with a growth mindset, they're not scared of failing, you know, they'll push themselves, every every failure is an attempt at learning and all of this. And I just had this light bulb moment where I realised I didn't need to be in that same box. Nothing was keeping me in that box, in that comfort zone, except me. And then when you realise there are no boundaries, then and that you can <laughs> yeah, do think, whatever you want to do. Are we our, our greatest worst? We're our greatest worst enemy absolutely. at times. Aren't we? we're, absolutely, absolutely. We're just we're fighting ourselves, and it's ourselves that are like, oh yeah, but you can't really do that, can you? Or oh, that might be hard work. Exactly. Or quite comfortable where you are now. Exactly. And our brains are designed to keep us safe. And you know, I was like pondering this I must have pondered it for a year where this penny kept sinking in I asked her a bit more and I read the book and all the rest of it and uh, I was just like oh this is life-changing I don't have to live in this box and I think organizations need to start thinking that way you a fixed mindset organization you a growth mindset do you want to make do you want to shift that dial do you want to make that change and and for me you know I I gave up a career of 25 years to do something completely new I don't didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I just do what I didn't want to do. And I literally felt like I was just about to bungee jump out of an aeroplane or parachute out of an aeroplane or bungee jump off a cliff or go on a horrible roller coaster that I hate going on. But it was that mix of feelings of excitement and trepidation of knowing that big, new, scary change could come 
but it was going to be fun and I was going to enjoy the ride. And I think if we can get organisations to accept those types of mindsets and approaches to change, actually changing from the norm and changing from the status quo can be really good. It can be really exciting uh, and can be really fruitful. It's really interesting you saying about your, you know, your friend teaching that to kids. I just think, oh, you know, that that to me wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be the norm because you think we when we get people into the world of work, we it's all about teaching them how to do the how to do the job, how to act in a work related scenario. But I don't know that we we really focus enough on on mindset, you know, and forget growth mindset. Sometimes it's just how how do people look into. When you've got a scenario, you can always look at it into a into a positive or into a into a negative. You know, if you're a glass half full or glass half half empty, and I know a lot of that is you know based on your the environment that you that you grew up in. But it's amazing if you really try and train your and and sometimes you do have to train yourself train yourself to look at the positives in the in the situations. Um, you know how much more of a growth mindset that you can that you can adopt. And I think it's like it's like. And because I, I felt like I, I had my my growth mindset, it feels like you've woken up. Like, where, you do. Where, where's Where's the rest of that time gone? I suddenly realised actually there's there's no limit to what you can do. And yes, you know, leadership and and moving forward is sometimes a bit of a leap of a leap of faith. But you you absolutely can do it. And you know, Sheila, from your your experience, I bet you you know if you reflect on what trajectory you could have gone on if you hadn't made that decision. I bet you don't regret it for a second. Oh, not at all. Not at all. You know, and I'm a glass half empty kind of girl. That's my default status. And my business partner's uh, mm-hmm. glass half full. And and sometimes when I catch myself in a negative thought pattern, I'll be like, what would Anne do? What would Anne do in this situation? How would she think about this? And I'll flip my mindset because I've got somebody that I can go... And I think this is really important, right? We surround ourselves with good people. We surround ourselves with Absolutely. people that inspire and encourage us. And as managers in businesses, that's what we want to be. We want to be somebody that people actually see some value in, that aspire to be and aspire to follow and aspire to um, want to be a part of that of that circle. And, and I surround myself now with really positive people. I surrounded myself with a, a different circumstance, set of people in my work life and it had a very negative effect on me. And I think that's great from a diversity perspective is that you don't you don't want a business where it's just use it's just lots of copies of use because that, that doesn't help you need that opposite to give you the you know give you that challenge when you're looking at what we're going to do here you get a different perspective and it might end up being a perspective that you didn't you didn't think of yourself mm. but bringing those together often comes up with some exceptional ideas but also you know i think, I think coming, coming back to sometimes challenging conversations it's getting into a mindset where if you've had made a decision and it may not have been your decision, but you've input into it. You know, it might not feel great that yours didn't didn't get over the line, but it's that forget it afterwards because it doesn't matter as long as you've thought about what's best for the for the business or the organisation. You've come to to a decision. Mm. Great, mm. do it, move on. But also, don't be afraid that if you get a bit down the line, you realise that that decision isn't you know as good as it looked at. Don't be afraid to change. You know, rather than just double down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we've committed to it so oh well we're never going to get everything right the first time right no. and, and for me i think what another kind of mindset shift for me is that you know when we go into work so when we're at home and we're dealing with kids or brothers sisters you know aunts uncles family friends whatever when we talk to people 
you know in, in our home lives we have to have difficult conversations there are things that might upset us there are things that really annoy us there are conflict that we have to get through and we do that and we do it with respect because these are the people that we love and we care about in our lives so we treat them with a certain level of respect and we approach those conversations in a certain way when we walk into the office we shrug off the human coat we put on the we put on the office coat and we lose the ability to have conversations in exactly the same way. And if we shift that balance and talk to those, talk to people and address and, and, and um, some of those areas of, of, say, conflict or disagreement in the same way that we would outside of work, i.e. a human, very human-centered approach, and let's take out the, I want to be right, you want to be right, it's my idea, not your idea, I'm the manager, you're the employee. Strip that back and just be person to person, we can have much more meaningful conversations. people's perspective at times it's like you know good organizations will absolutely help grow and develop individuals you know that they absolutely will do that but don't forget that you know this is your life it's your you know it's your career and if you're lucky if you get people who will help you out there but you know you got to push for that yourself and you know I'm I find at times when I see people who have quite a lot of ambition you know but not the drive to actually get there you know it's how do we get people in that you know that you've got you're the one who've got to drive this drive this forward and i think that's it as you know we touched on it before but this shared responsibility as well it's not down to an employer to fix everything for you you've got to put some effort in as well so it has to come back to this shared responsibility approach anybody that comes up to you saying hey look you know we've got a problem with this but i've i've looked into here here and here i've talked to this person this person this person and here are some examples of what we possibly could do about it. You think, oh my God, that's amazing. Rather than, a problem. here's a problem. <laughs> oh, great. Exactly. I'll add it to the list, shall I? I'll do that, shall I? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I want to, I want to empower, yeah, yeah. I want to empower you yeah. to, to do it. It's, you know, it's silly things at times where I'm like, oh, I just noticed that nobody's replaced the toilet rolls. Okay, yeah, cool. I can go and do that. Yeah, because I can. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, well, that's surely that's somebody's job to do it. Well, yeah, but. We're all part of the team here. It doesn't matter, does it? And equally, I think it's important as well when people then bring those ideas to you is to not dismiss them out of hand. And again, I've been a bugger for that because you're going at 100 miles an hour. You'll be like, no, 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 no. And they walk away going, I've just just been there with all these ideas and they've just been dismissed out of hand without any consideration or explanation. So it's it's really, really, you know, this is a really difficult path to walk. And and it just takes self-awareness communication and a want for everybody to collectively succeed and i and I, I absolutely resonate with you in that self-awareness piece i think at times part of, of learning and growth is when you have a better understanding of the things that, that often trip yourself up is being more aware of it and when you do catch yourself in that moment to just think you know have some tools in your toolkit as to how you would deal with that you know for example i've often found at times when i'm in meetings i get I get um, what I call GP's mind, you know, rather than writing really quickly down on the prescription. I have so many thoughts going through my head that I then really, really speed up. And it, and what I'm saying then doesn't doesn't always come across very well. So I try and find myself in that moment to just write, take a breath, slow down and then carry on. But it's, you know, it's been years in the training and it will be probably more years in the training. But it's just just keep trying to chip away at it. When I look at stuff everything's a work in progress nothing is ever finished 
nothing's ever finished, polished and perfected. It's all work in progress because there's always room for improvement in everything. Do you know what? And um, yeah, another another great one that I that I like is um, "Perfect is the enemy of progress." I like that one. Which genius said that? Oh, um, that, I think that was uh, funny. That was Andrew on one of my other one of my pod- podcasts. I'm not sure where he where he heard that, but I absolutely I absolutely loved it. And I and I often tell people like stop aiming for pro- for perfection because it doesn't exist. Or actually, to get perfection, you're going to spend far too much time. You know, if you think getting something to 80, 85% takes 100% of time, to get it that extra 15% might take another 100% of time. It's just, you don't, you often don't need it. And there's a, you know, I love the 80 20 rule. I live my life by the 80 20 rule. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's amazing how transferable that is into all sorts of different situations. Absolutely everything. Exercise, although I've, I've got the I've got it switched around the wrong way. I spend eighty percent of the time sat on my backside and twenty percent exercising. But... Oh, I don't know. I feel like I'm on, I'm probably on the zero the zero rule on that at the moment. Yeah, you know, it's a great principle. I just think we just need to be more human. Recognise that well being needs to be a board level agenda item that's measured and managed, um, and create workplaces that people enjoy being a part of. If you do that, your organisations will thrive. And yes, you might need to put a little bit more investment into it, but it's an investment. It's not an expenditure. Any investment you put into this and do it, doing it in the right way will yield you a return. At the minute, I see far too many organisations putting tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds onto wellbeing spend that they cannot measure the impact of the effectiveness and for me that just does not make any sense whatsoever exactly my you know, i would i would share that entirely and i think you know for, for me in particular it's, it's about caring you know i think if you if you just think about caring for other people you know and, and for me leadership is about you know leadership is a privilege to be in charge of in charge of other people um, and if you if you care about them genuinely care about them you'll make the right decisions and as you said, it's an investment, and you know that will pay off over time in in people staying with you, you know, for, for longer periods of time, for people coming up with great great ideas, and you know, companies will be successful. There's no doubt about it. And when you focus on people, you'll make money. Well, brilliant! Look, that was um, that was a really great conversation. Fabulous. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com. 